The following talk was given at Mile High Church in Lakewood, Colorado. Please visit our website at milehighchurch.org. So um, what we're talking about today is the fire within us, each of us. We have this and uh, that passion and that determination and that, that willingness to, to go for it in life. And when we see these kids doing it up here, I think it inspires all of us and reminds us that no matter where we are in the trail, no matter how young or how old we are, that there is a, a fire alive in all of us and we want to, we want to support it and we want to, we want to find it, we want to feed it, and we want to fan that flame. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. You know, I, I like that um, you Sunday always falls in the spring because it's this time of amazing growth. And we look around us in this time and we see everything bursting forth into color. We see all these flowers and bushes and trees and they know. There is a wisdom alive in them that now is the time for them to burst forth and that the conditions are perfect for their growth right now. That's the truth about us right now, that the conditions for our growth are perfect. We have everything we need. So what we want to do is align with that power and that wisdom that's alive in us, that seeks to express through us, and to really bring ourselves into the world fully alive, fully awake, fully aware. You guys up for that? All right, cool. Well, you've had a great uh, example shown for you this morning of how to do it. So so yeah, we're going to talk about that. First thing we're going to talk about is trying to to find it, trying to find our passion, trying to connect with our passion. And, uh, you know, when we're first starting out, we're trying to figure out what what does the world really need? What What can I bring to the world that the world really needs? I love what the great Howard Thurman said about that. He said that, uh, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is people that have come alive. So we've got to find that. We've got to find that place in ourselves that makes us come alive. Connect ourselves with it. And it can be a kind of a winding journey. I know it was for me a very circuitous route to uh, find where my fire really was. I, uh, I grew up in the 60s, and uh, for some reason we were trying to beat the Russians to the moon then. I don't know, uh, there was some kind of contest going on. And uh, <laughs> so at that particular time, if you, were, uh, if you were good in math and science, the best that you could do is go to engineering school. Uh, so that's where I went, uh, to... Uh, a uh, small engineering school in upstate New York in the frozen tundra up there and um, made my parents incredibly happy uh, for me to go there. Uh, but I wasn't there too long where before I realized, you know, this isn't really my place and these aren't really my people. But, um, but there I was. And so uh, <clears throat> we did beat the Russians to the moon, so it was all worth it. But... Uh, <laughs> But as I got there for a while, uh, you know, I knew this wasn't going to be my path, but I liked the other things about college, and I made some good friends, and I was able to hang in there and uh, do my work and graduate. And, uh, you know, then after I got done with that um, and did some uh, part-time jobs in my hometown, I came out west to um, visit some friends of mine that had graduated from school and moved to Colorado and crashed with them for a while and I knew that I had found my place. 
I knew that I'd found my place. I remember someone come out here and saying, do you ever miss home? And I'm like, no, I don't, as a matter of fact. Uh, And I think that's true for a lot of us in here, that when we found this place, we knew that we were home. So then it was the thing of of finding the fire. And I had a lot of of part-time jobs, a lot of... uh, did a lot of weird things, just bumping around, uh, doing things to get things going. And one of the things that helped me during that time was uh, uh, I learned to meditate. I discovered the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda and starting work, started working with those lessons and that teaching. One of the great things for me every year is to hear a kid come out here and say Paramahansa Yogananda. <laughs> and you knew you were going to hear it, didn't you? You knew you were going to hear it. But learning to meditate was a great thing for me because it started to uh, bring me inward and, and to start listening to the wisdom within myself and to slow me down and to not be looking so much outside myself for, uh, for my verification and for finding my fire. Also, during this time, I was lucky enough to uh, meet Stephanie. And that was a great thing for me, certainly a game changer and uh, glad that our souls were able to collide in this lifetime here and, and um, such a great gift in my life there. And we started to, started to build a, a life together and home together and I actually wound up getting a pretty good job after a while and I was working construction and finally moved my way up uh, as a surveyor where I was running a couple of crews and making decent money. I had vacation and I had benefits and stuff. And um, I also realized that what, re- what I really loved was playing music, playing music with my friends and writing music and that kind of thing. So, you know, I remember we were coming down from the mountains one time and I said to Stephanie, you know, I really love playing music. I wish I could do that all the time. And she said, well, you said that before, but you never do anything about it. So... <laughs> you can't take that back you know what I mean so uh, so we talked about it a little bit and uh, you know about a week later I went in and left that job and uh, left that good job that paid good money and paid the bills and started playing uh, music in coffee houses for tips with a friend of mine Uh, and Stephanie said well we'll try it for a year and see how that goes that was, uh, I think that was about 40 years ago, and we're still seeing how it goes. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was quite a journey. It set me on quite a journey. Uh, it started with uh, two of us making music, and then we added a third guy, and then a fourth, and then a fifth, and then we had a full rock and roll band, and we're in the bars, and it, it was quite a journey, that particular life, and, and uh, had its own stresses and uh, our relationship. And, um, you know, it was, it, it was finding this community. Uh, we, we actually split up for a while, and we, it was finding this community. She welcomed me here to, uh, she had found it, and she welcomed me here to be her, here with her on a Sunday morning, and it helped us put our thing back together and to be moving forward and and these teachings in this community supported us as we're going on that journey and then uh, when our first son Jesse came uh, it kind of changed the whole thing for me I really got involved in in youth ministry and uh, want to to learn more about being around kids and um, I could see in moving forward that uh, the rock and roll life and uh, the dad life 
didn't really connect that well. And then uh, our son Gabriel joined the group, and I knew that I had to make a change. It, 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 it had to be different. And I was okay with that. But I still wanted to know, how do I, how do I feed that fire? Now that I've discovered it, how do I feed that fire? And I think that's a big thing for all of us. We find where our passion is, where uh, that part of us is that really feels alive and really feels connected with the spirit inside of us. How do we feed it? You know, for me, I started to discover that I really like playing music for kids as well. You know, and I, uh, I love playing music with the kids here on Sunday mornings. And uh, then I started playing with kids playing music with kids in preschools and, and stuff like that. Another low-paying job that I was attracted to. But, you know, I, I kept doing that, and I realized that I liked it. And I put a band together, Burying the Rainbows, and, and we played at festivals, and we did all this stuff, and we created all these camps here and everything. And I found that uh, it, really, it really fed that fire in me to be playing music and to, and to be creative. And, um, you know, it was interesting playing for kids because... Uh, they were sober, and um, <clears throat> uh, they weren't always blowing smoke at me when they re- made requests. So it made it, it was kind of cool. But I, I really found that um, uh, I really found that I connected with my passion there, and, and that music and kids were a great combination for me. And it really helped us build this thing that we're doing here, just by by following that passion and by following my intuition and trusting my intuition to guide me where I needed to go. And so I think when we're talking about feeding the fire that's alive in us, in all of us, we need to trust our intuition and that's a big part of our teaching here is intuition. It's a big part of it. Albert Einstein said that the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a sacred servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. We want to follow that gift of our intuition. You know, we've been studying in uh, one of our classes in the Essential Ernest Holmes on Friday mornings, we've been studying about intuition and science. One of the cool things that Ernest Holmes said that, that the masters throughout the years have intuitively known the truth, have gone in through the front door of spirit. But in our culture, we really love science. We are a science people and we want proof. So we want to go in through the back door of spirit and we want to prove it. And, and I think it's important that we look for proof. And in this time that we're living in now, we can see that the great pioneers in science, like many of us know Joe Dispenza's work and Greg Braden, and that we're, we're really proving these principles that our spiritual practice will indeed improve our lives, will improve not only our outlook, but the way that we get to show up in the world and do things. And what Holmes said is, if you go in the front door of intuition, or if you go in the back door of science, when you get into the living room, you're going to see the same furniture. And I love that. I love that. I love that. So a big part of our teaching here is to connect with and to trust our intuition. It's an important part of it. Ernest Holmes talked a lot about changing our beliefs. 
Changing the things that no longer serve us and aligning ourselves with things that we know are true, that we can feel are true within us. And to not let other people talk us out of it. He said something really cool. Change your belief and you can change your world. Don't let anyone tell you this isn't true. Those who have used it in the right way have proved it to be true. Those who have never tried it know nothing about it. Leave them alone. So in this time that we find ourselves in now, there's a lot of comparison that's available to us. You know, because of social media, these kids that are up here on the platform today have never known the world without the World Wide Web. They have never known the world without a cell phone. This is the world that they're in. And it's a world of comparison. Theodore Roosevelt said that comparison is the thief of joy. When we compare ourselves to other people all the time, we don't have enough. They've got more than we do. Why are they having more fun than I am? Why are they on a beach someplace and I'm still sitting here in my room? There's a lot of comparison that goes on. So we have to be aware of that and we have to see what is our part? Where do I feel my joy? Where do I feel my joy? Because other people can squash our joy when we have an idea, when we have a feeling that something might be really good, and when we tell other people, they're like, meh, I don't know. And then we start to doubt ourselves. I love what uh, Emerson said about this. And this is before the internet, mind you. Emerson (laughs) was talking about that comparison thing. He said, whatever you do, you need courage. Whatever course you decide upon, there is always someone to tell you that you're wrong. There are always difficulties arising to tempt you to believe that your critics are right. To be yourself in a world that is always trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. To be yourself in a world that's always trying to make you conform to other ideas That's why I think the gift of this teaching is, what the gift of our spiritual practice is, and why it's so important for us to stay with our spiritual practice, to connect with that power and that wisdom and that light that's inside of us, and to know it, to intuitively know it, and to trust it. So if you've got some great idea, keep it to yourself for a while. You don't have to show it to other people. You're not alone in it. Spirit is supporting your idea. Spirit is supporting your dreams always. And that's how we feed that fire. Our spiritual practice feeds that fire that is alive in us. Spirit wants to express through us in the world. So our practice unifies us with that power and brings us into the world. The last thing I wanted to talk about is is about fanning the flame. How do we fan flame of that fire once we get it going? How do we keep it going? And I say that it's prayer. It's our affirmative prayer. And I know what I'm teaching beyond limits. We talk about the words that keep us from getting to the party. For a lot of people, it's the word God. I'll be talking to beyond limits the first night. I'll say the word God. I can feel people going away. And I'll say, all right, how many of you, when I say that word, you got problems? 
about half the room puts their hands up. You're feeling the same thing. I know you are. Don't raise your hands, though. (laughs) Because we've got ideas that are attached to that word. And we need to heal those ideas. If we need to say different word, divine presence, universal spirit, divine mother, Bubba, whatever it is, there's something that's alive in us. And it isn't out there. It's in here. That's really what this whole teaching is about, is healing that. Healing that feeling of being separate from the truth of our being. Being separate from the divine spirit and the divine creativity that brought us into this world. We're not separate from it. It's alive in us right now. You know, in this um, Friday morning class, we've been talking a lot about prayer. Ernest Holmes talked so much about prayer, about affirmative prayer. That's what our thing is in here, is affirmative prayer. And so we teach the steps of it. We teach a method to do it. But the main point is to get us to do it. It's not that we're going to be doing it wrong or that there's some God outside of us that's checking to make sure we do it properly. It's not like that. We're building a relationship with the truth of ourselves. You know, I love the story about there was this um, wise man who lived on this island and he, he, was, he was a sage and he had this beautiful community that lived around him and they, they lived in peace and they lived in joy and they lived a life of celebration and a lot of it had to do with the way that they prayed together and the way this wise, wise man taught him to pray. And then the word got out to the elders and the high priests about this guy. So they wanted to go check him out and see if he was doing the prayers properly. So they went there. They went there in a boat. A couple of priests go there in a boat and they check him out. And they listen to him praying with his people. And they're like, man, he's doing this whole thing wrong. So... They stay there with him for a couple of weeks and they teach him the prayers, right? And they're working on doing the prayers correctly. And so after a couple of weeks, they say to him, do you think you got this now? And he's like, yeah, I I think I've got it. I think I got these right. So they say, okay, we're going to go back. So they get in their boat and they start going away. They look out and they can see him walking across the water towards their boat. And he says, I'm sorry, I've already forgotten what you taught me. So it's not like we're going to do it wrong. It's like we want to be building a relationship. It's about building a relationship. One of the, one of the great ministers that I've studied is a guy named Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was a, a great minister in New York City in uh, the Presbyterian Church in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And Riverside Chapel in New York, he was the first minister there, this beautiful cathedral in New York City. He said this about prayer. Prayer is the hospitality of the soul entertaining the Most High. True prayer is affirmative. It turns its back on our miserable needs and stretches out a taking hand to appropriate the inexhaustible resources of the divine grace. True prayer is affirmative. That's what we teach here. And as we've been studying this, as this class that we've been teaching on Friday morning, we have this beautiful Friday morning church that gathers together. And we've been talking about what prayer is. And the fact that our prayers don't really go anywhere because we're already there. We, and we talked a lot in the last couple of weeks about praying for other people. When we want to pray for other people, 
we still hold on to this idea that our prayers are going somewhere out to God and God is judging our prayers and there's some whimsical judging God that is deciding whether these prayers are good enough. That's, that's not what's going on. When I pray for you, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I'm trying to convince me of how I see you. When a practitioner prays for someone else, the practitioner is praying in their heart, in their mind, in their soul, because we're already part of that one soul. Ernest Holmes said that affirmative prayer is the act, the art, and the science of inducing thought within the mentality of the one praying. That's what it's about. Because we're already connected, all of us. So that's what we were really cranking on in this Friday class the last couple of weeks, about that idea of how do we pray for someone else? And I love this thought here. Holmes said that the practitioner loves the person they're praying for back into their own center. Loves the person they're praying for back into their own center. They don't establish that person in truth, in God, or in life. They merely take them by the mental hand and lead them back into themselves. The whole effort, whether we pray silently or out loud, is to establish that person in their own spiritual center. I love that. We love that person back into their own center. That's what we're doing in prayer. So we're having some great discussions about this writing about it, talking about it. And then a couple weeks ago, a woman that was in the class had an experience of this. And she shared it with the class. And she said it was okay if I shared it with you today. So she was a mom. She is a mom who has a couple of kids, uh, twins, eight-and-a-half-year-old twins, a boy and a girl, And the boy has a lot of special needs and a long list of medical diagnoses. And there's not much that he can do. He can't speak too well, can't write in sentences. There's not much that he can do. And it's incredibly frustrating for her, all the work that she does, all the work that her family does to, to try and bring him along and to help him. And they have all these learning things around the house, whiteboards and all this stuff. But it's an enormous amount of effort. And sometimes it just doesn't seem to be going anywhere. She talked about the frustration with that. And then she said, I decided to try this. I decided to try this. Because one of the things that Ernest Holmes talked about is we've got to feel that connection. Not just think about it, but feel it. And pray until we feel it. She said, so I decided I would give it a try. And her husband and her, her daughter were home as well as her son, so <clears throat> she knew that, that he was safe. And so she went into a, a little room by herself there, and she said she just sat down and decided to just take the time that it took until she could feel something. And she said it took her about a half an hour of sitting there of unifying herself with the spirit within her. I'm just trying to feel it, that she was alive in it, and that it was alive in her. And she said after a certain amount of time, she started to feel it. 
She could feel that she was connected. She had slowed herself down and just felt herself relaxed and felt herself connected with that one power that was alive in her. And then she decided to pray for her son. Affirmatively. To just pray for her son. She said she began with the medical part of it. The all the things in his brain that weren't connected properly and that she st- saw them connecting perfectly and that those, those neurons were going to the places where they should go. That everything was aligning perfectly for him medically and she saw him that way. But then she hung in and went deeper and started to see him as a soul. Started to see him as whole, complete and perfect just the way that he was. Loving him the way that he was. She dropped into that feeling of just being there with that. Of being there with the creative spirit alive in her and in him. In that moment, she said that she remembered. I remembered the part where the practitioner loves the patient back into their own center. Through my thought, I saw my son as whole, complete, just loving him back to his center. I could see it, and I could feel it. And she just sat there for a while just with that feeling of a soul-to-soul connection with him. And then everything was all right. Didn't see him as a series of diagnosis, but as a perfect soul right there. So then she finished her prayer, let it go, and she walked out into the living room, and he had written this up on a whiteboard in the house, and this is a kid who doesn't write, who doesn't make sentences, who doesn't do things like this. So we don't know how that happened. We can't measure it, but it happened. Something happened that was real, that touched his heart, that touched his soul, and touched her heart. And in that room on Friday morning, another guy that was in there stood up and said, you know, I got a 31-year-old son who's on the spectrum. Greatest gift I've ever had in my life that I didn't create. Greatest gift. Changed my whole world. There's something so amazing that it's alive in us. We don't understand it. We're going to keep trying to measure it. We're going to keep trying to figure it out. But the main thing we can do is use it. Our spiritual practice is what we use to use it. We sit down. We connect. We unify ourselves with the power that is so much greater than we are. And we speak from that power. Not to it, but from it. It's the essence of who we are, all of us, all the time. So I give thanks for that gift. I give thanks for that power. A lot of us think, boy, I wish I would have had this stuff when I was a kid. Anybody here thinking that? Because we learned a lot of weird stuff when we were kids about God. He seemed to look like Charlton Heston. He was always up on a cloud somewhere. Seemed to be angry a lot. Seemed to be angry every Sunday morning. 
we're releasing that narrative. We're releasing that idea, idea and we're turning to the truth of who we are. There is a joy, there is a power, there is a passion, there is a fire alive in each of us. Let's bring it out into the world. You know, this world that we're in now that has so much competition and chaos, and we have this idea that we're going to fix the world if our team wins. If our team wins in politics, that'll be the solution. We need a spiritual solution that includes everybody. And we're a part of it. We're a part of it. By aligning ourselves with a higher truth, by living from that perspective, that's how we're going to bring peace into the world. That's how we're going to get this thing done. Thank you for listening to the Mile High Church Podcast. This podcast is made possible by the generous contributions from listeners like you. If you'd like to make a donation, text 720-230-1404 or visit us at milehighchurch.org.